Good to be with you. Uh, guys playing the band, thank you so much. That was such an encouragement. That was awesome to, to hear you guys playing again and just to hear that full sound. Uh, it was great. Um, thank you guys for joining us. My name is Mark. I serve as one of the pastors here. And this morning I'm going to be leading us in our study of the scriptures this morning. So if you haven't already, if you could turn to Zechariah 9, verse 9. We're going to be camping out there this morning. Zechariah, if you're looking for it, if you're wondering, where is this book? Where does this, where does this book exist? Use your table of contents. They're helpful. Everyone does it. Everyone uses the table of contents. Even the highest scholars can't remember every single, every single minor prophet. So take a look at your table of contents. If you have a physical copy of the Bible, if you don't, Flip open, you're probably already there because apps are way faster. So, but anyway, we're in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Now, while you're turning over there, I want to address just the, the beauty of this book and the beauty of this verse. Just like Jordan was just saying, joy. Joy is found saturated in the scriptures. It's, it's found as, as an emotive response that we can see all throughout, all throughout scripture. But there's something particularly interesting about this verse. And this verse is one of these verses we've wanted to focus on during this Advent season. Because if you're new to watching this, if this is your first time here, we've been going through an Advent series titled Awaiting the King. Awaiting the King, the promise of Advent. And each passage that we study is an Old Testament promise that is ultimately fulfilled in the New Testament by Christ. And each promise evokes a particular response from God's people that cause us to be in a place of waiting. Advent means coming. Advent means coming. So while we wait for the king to come again, we reflect on the promises fulfilled when he came to earth for the first time as an infant. And in that, we get to see this response of joy. Now, let's be real. Let's be honest. In our unprecedented season that we're in right now, I think the, most two, the two most challenging spiritual emotions that we need to fight for is joy and contentment. Right now, those are the two things we need to be fighting for. Because it's hard. It's hard to be joyful right now. It's hard to find contentment when all we're doing is looking for that future hope, that future relief. When we're turning on the news, all we see is what? We see there, no, there isn't much joy right now. And there's also not a lot of contentment. But if you wait, things are going to get better, right? That's what we keep hearing. But Christian, the church, we must bring back this emotive response of joy, of contentment. We have to fight for it. And what we need, we need examples of brothers and sisters who have found joy in bleak circumstances. And that's why I think this verse and this book is a real encouragement to us this morning. 
because God is giving that to us now. When he spoke through Zechariah in this verse, and it shows us not what we must rejoice in, but who we must rejoice in. Let's pray real quick. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the joy that it gives us. And God, I just pray now that if there's anyone struggling with joy, if there's anyone struggling with contentment, I pray, God, that you would supernaturally be moving through them, be working in them so that they would, they would be encouraged. They'd be encouraged and they'd find their rejoicing in Christ. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. So now that you've turned over to Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, let's read it together one more time. It says this, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So immediately we're given this reaction. We're given this emotive response to the coming king. Israel is told by God, this is a moment where it's God is speaking through Zechariah. It's not Zechariah's just his own words. This is God himself speaking through Zechariah to say, rejoice, shout, because look, your king is coming to you. But what's fascinating about this is that language is a similar language that we find in Luke chapter 1. We also find it in Matthew 21, which we're going to look into in a little bit. But when we're looking at these two words, rejoice and shout, we're going to see this in another way. So this is in Luke 1, verses 39 through 45. In light of Zechariah uh, verse 9, chapter, chapter 9, verse 9, it says this, In those days Mary set out and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judah, where she entered Zechariah's house and greeted Elizabeth. Real quick side note. Kids, if you're watching, this is a different Zechariah. This isn't the same guy. They're different people have different names. This is back, this is way farther, a few hundred years later. Okay, come back with me. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped inside her, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Then she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and your child will be blessed. How could this happen to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For you see, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leapt for joy inside me. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill what he has spoken to her. Now, that's obviously another setting of Advent, something that we're gonna that we're studying and we're looking at. But what I want you to focus on is that response joy. Notice the language. 
God speaks a word, rejoice, shout, your king is coming. And Elizabeth, then filled with the Holy Spirit, instantaneously, along with unborn baby John the Baptist, both start rejoicing and exclaiming, shouting, exclaiming. These are all the same words, but they're used to define um, they're kind of addressing something different that we don't see in any other thing. We don't see it in happiness. This response is not the same as someone being very glad, someone being very merry, someone being happy. This isn't even the same type of word that's used to describe a surprise, a surprise of sorts. This is altogether a supernatural, supernatural response of joy. This is, a, this is a response unlike any other in the scriptures because we see here in the Old Testament and again in the New Testament an, excla an exclaiming, a shout, a rejoice of the coming king, of being in the presence of the coming king. And that's amazing because Elizabeth, she's just filled with the Holy Spirit, exclaims this same God in our, well, let me back up, rejoice, rejoice is a response. Because your king is coming is the action. Our response of joy is always from a divine evidence of Christ's character and action. Our response of joy is always from a divine evidence of Christ's character in action. But what is in his character that causes this deeper joy? Why should the coming of Christ cause us to rejoice at all? Let me ask that question again. Why should the coming of Christ cause us to rejoice? As our, as our verse shows, we rejoice in the character of King Jesus, his righteousness, his victory, and his humility. His very character evokes a response of a deeper joy that is both instantaneous, very loud, and quite surprising. We find a deeper joy. We find a deeper joy in those who trust him. So let's first, let's, let's see how this joy is in Christ's righteousness. He is righteous and victorious. Now, defining righteousness, that has been a bit of a challenge for quite a while with some scholars because it's so complex. There's so much complexity to righteousness because it's not quite like anything else. It's actually everything else wrapped up into righteousness. Goodness, justice, Wisdom, mercy, all of these things can be found within righteousness. So defining it has been in itself kind of difficult. 
because then it's also used throughout Scripture in kind of different contexts and in different ways. So in a basic sense, righteousness, if we're looking back in the Old Testament, righteousness is going to be this reflection, this reflection of, a, of an established standard of order, this established order of correctness, right? Things are righteous, they are right. Right? We see it reflected in the different businesses that God had. When he was establishing the people, he was saying, we want, I want your business, Israel, to be a reflection of righteousness. I want it to have a correctness. I want it to embody what I want you to, what, it, what is ultimately a reflection of myself, right? Correctness, we can see that in the standard of order of, of righteousness. But Scripture also gives us another example of righteousness, not just in your business, but also theologically speaking, this is also a standard of moral character. There's not only a, an ethical, ethical righteousness, there's a moral righteousness. All of those same things attribute to someone's personhood, the, their character, who they are. But what's really interesting, what's really interesting to me is as I was looking through this, as I was, I was studying this, this passage this week, I found that the opposite of righteousness is evil. Maybe it's just me, but I always consider good to be the opposite of evil, right? We think about uh, the verse in Isaiah where they define what is good and good what is evil, and they, we use those two, uh, those two words back and forth simultaneously, almost in an opposite type of way. However, that's not the case because righteousness is actually in itself the opposite of evil because there cannot be any evil within righteousness. And this is the reason why, because righteousness, unlike something that is just good, righteousness is always referred to in a passive context, a passive character trait. Meaning, it's a character, it's a, it's righteousness is given to another from a source. The prophet Isaiah describes it as waves that are overflowing in the sea. He describes it as waves. Righteousness is given from a source. When we say that Jesus is righteous, we say that Jesus is righteousness. He is the very definition of it because not only is the, he the very embodiment of it, but because he passively is giving it from himself through the Spirit to others. When we receive the Holy Spirit, the righteousness of Christ, like a wave, is poured onto us. It is given. Righteousness has a source, and there is no evil in it. There is nothing in it. Think about Psalm 7, verse 17. I will thank the Lord for his righteousness. I will sing about the name of the Lord Most High. 
2 Corinthians 3, verse 9, For if the ministry that brought condemnation had glory, the ministry that, what, brings righteousness, it is a, give, it is a gift, it is given to us, righteousness overflows with even more glory. We have a deeper joy because Christ brought us into his righteousness. He brought us into himself. That's why when scripture talks about righteousness in Christ, it is our righteousness that is found in him as the very definition of righteousness itself. Not only are we brought, though, into his righteousness, we're also brought into his victory. We're brought into the joy of his victory. I don't know if you've ever had this moment, but have you ever been, as a Christian, have you ever been surprised, surprised by joy? I remember there was a, there was a time when I was in a Bible college, and there was this guy that was also attending the Bible college, and he was, was like one of those guys, and this wasn't the type of Bible college where you go and you just enroll and you take classes in. This was like a whole program, like a discipleship program type thing. And so everyone, if you're there, you, you want to be there. There was one guy who did not clearly want to be there. He's like one of those guys who just was really, uh, like his parents signed him up or something, something like that happened. Um, but either way, he was just as surprised in a negative way as we were, because we were like, why are you here if you don't want to be here? And he's like, I don't know either. So he was there, wasn't having a good time. Months pass, you know, and he's just one of those guys that's, uh, to put bluntly, hard to enjoy the presence of, you know, not like the, the friendliest of natured fellows. However, as time progresses, as time progresses, everyone has to go on this mission trip, and they're going on a different on a mission trip to other places. And he had to go on a mission trip too. And of course, everyone's like, oh, great, awesome. This is going to be wonderful. Uh, he wasn't on my mission trip, but that's okay. Anyway, as everyone goes on their mission trips, everyone comes back. And when everyone comes back, there's something different. There's things, things spreading. Can they say, hey, have you you seen this? Have you seen, I'll just, I don't even, you know, I won't say his name, but have you seen that guy? He's, he's like different. He's like a different, he's a different dude. And so everyone comes up there and, and then we start talking to him and everyone is surprised so much so that it's visible on everyone's faces because when you first came in to greet him, he would normally, he wouldn't even acknowledge you. But as soon as we saw him again, it was a, hey, brother. And he would give you a huge warm hug. And then he would say, hello, sister. And then he would give you a big hug. It was this greeting of joy. And everyone, in effect, was surprised by this very joy because there was this new character trait within him that wasn't in him before. And as you began to see his character develop, you had to say that there was something 
that has been given to you. And it's a deeper joy because now there's a righteousness within you that everyone is so surprised by that we can't help but talking about. And in that, we saw that he was saved and we got to rejoice with him in not just God's righteousness, not just Christ's righteousness, but also in Christ's victory. Because salvation is something we should always celebrate, church. Church, we should never undermine the power of God in salvation. When he saves the lost, we should be like the angels rejoicing in the parable of the lost sheep, where the angels in the whole town are rejoicing in heaven over Christ, over the shepherd, finding that one lost soul. Because in that moment, when we get to see the display of righteousness, we also get to rejoice in Christ's victory. Christ's victory. Now, let's come back to this text here. Israel was going through a bit of a hard time. Israel was going through a bit of a hard time. So Zechariah is speaking to them right at the end of their exile in Babylon. So right at the end of the, they had a 70-year exile of which they were being uh, disciplined by God. They were put in exile over their sin, and it was uh, given to them it was that there was going to be a 70-year time frame that they would be doing this. Well, now they've, they're just about at the end of that 70 years. And Israel is making their way. They've made it back to their Jerusalem, what was once their homeland, which is now all of a sudden in, just in rubble. It was in rubble. It was, you know, dark. There was so much to build. It was overwhelming. And not only that, Israel was left in a very vulnerable place because as they're at the end of this time, all of the nations around them all of the nations around them are looking at Israel as saying they are very vulnerable right now. They really don't have that much protection against them. You hear all about that in Ezra. You hear about that story in, in Nehemiah. But needless to say, there was just mixed emotions. There's excitement to be back in Jerusalem, sadness over the loss of their city. But this burdened vulnerability, this burdened vulnerability led a group of Israelites to come to Zechariah and say, what if we're captured again? What if things happen? And then they left this, which I think is just a, an amazing question for us to consider right now. Will things ever be the same? Will things ever be the same? Isn't that a question we hear so often right now, in the midst of this pandemic, we ask ourselves often, will things ever be the same? We're told this is the new normal. But I think in our hearts, we're fighting against a burden of vulnerability of asking ourselves, will things ever be the same again? And that's right where God shows up. That is right where Jesus shows up. 
because Israel had in that moment, they were forgetting about the power of their God in his victory. And so, so God begins to tell through Zechariah to his people, he begins to use a new word called the Lord of armies. I don't know if you've heard that, that phrase before. The Lord of armies. This is a definition, and this is something um, that's repeated all throughout the prophets. It's repeated all throughout the prophets. But here's the interesting thing. You won't find it in the Pentateuch, and you're not going to find it in the historical books. You're not going to find it in Joshua, in Judges, in Ruth. You're not going to find it in 1 Kings, 2 Kings. You're not going to find it there. Where you're going to find it is when the prophets began addressing this vulnerable question that the Israelites had in whether or not things would ever be the same again. And it is this, remember the victory of your God. Remember who he is. He is the Lord of armies. What is the Lord of armies? The Lord of armies is the Lord of everything. The universe the world, the angelic host, the Lord of armies. Some translations, further back tra- uh, translations would also say Jehovah of hosts. This means the same thing. This means that this Lord is powerful. He is a powerful God. And this phrase, this title is being used when there were people who needed to be reminded of God's victory. Zechariah chapter 8, just a chapter before ours, in verse 7 and 8, he says this. By the way, he uses the Lord of Armies like like over like 15 times or something. He uses it a lot. He says, the Lord of Armies says this, I will save my people from the land of the east and the land of the west. I will bring them back to live in Jerusalem. They will be my people, and I will be their faithful and righteous God. The Lord of armies is a title given to God and God alone. His victory and authority extend over all, and we see this on this side of the cross, because we know that the Lord of armies is Christ Jesus, who has victory over even even more than just the universe, the world, the angelic host. Christ's victory is also over sin. We celebrate in Christ's victory because he is victorious over sin. He's victorious over death. He's victorious in the resurrection. He's victorious in his ascension. And he's victorious over the lordship of his church. We see this in the Old Testament is looking forward to Jesus the Messiah, saying that he is the very definition of righteousness and victory. 
and victory. And now here it turns because this definition of victory also has more to it than just this, than just what's being given to us right here. If we look over to Revelation, if we look into Revelation verse 19, we get to see a description of Jesus victorious. As Jesus is going to come, as Jesus came, and as we know the promise that Jesus is coming again, Scripture gives us another, another reality of Christ's victory in Revelation 19, verses 11 through 16. It says this, Then I saw heaven opened, and there was a white horse, and its rider is called Faithful and True. And he judges and makes war with justice. His eyes were like a fiery flame, and many crowns were on his head. And he had a name written on that no one knows except himself. And he wore a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. The armies that were in heaven followed him on white horses wearing pure white linen. A sharp sword came from his mouth so that he might strike the nations with it. He will rule them with an iron rod. He will also trample the winepress of the fierce anger of God the Almighty. And he has a name written on his robe and on his thigh, King of kings and Lord of lords. Christ is victorious. There is victory in Jesus. Be sure that Jesus is in his very nature one who gives and is an outpouring of righteousness and also stands victorious as the Lord of armies. But there is more that this verse describes of us because if we are left there, we are left in this state of awe. And maybe our joy is, is good to stay there in this sense of awe, but that's not all that this verse says. It says, not only is he righteous, not only is he victorious, he is also humble. We find joy, a deeper joy, in Christ's humility. The second half of, the, of our verse says, he is righteous and victorious, humble, and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, this, this is a prophecy that, if you're familiar with the scriptures, this is a prophecy that's immediately fulfilled. Uh, well, not immediately. I mean, like in a few hundred years from now fulfilled. But nevertheless, fulfilled in Matthew 21. And there we encounter another advent Another advent, this is the coming of Jesus, the Messiah, into Jerusalem. Just like Zechariah 9, and just like Luke 1, I want you to listen to the people's response when they encounter 
King Jesus. Matthew 21, verses 8 and 9. A very large crowd. This is when he's coming in on the donkey. A very very large crowd spread their clothes on the road. Others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them on the road. Then the crowds who went ahead of him and those who followed, same word, shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. They shouted. They shouted. Their response was an exclamation of deeper joy, welt up inside of them that they could not hold on, they could not suppress any longer. God says to his people, when you see the king of kings, when you experience his righteousness, shout, be joyful, be filled with joy that I am giving you in my righteousness, in my victory. Luke 1, when Elizabeth sees Mary, she exclaims with joy, she shouts. And when Jerusalem sees Jesus coming in on a donkey. They have no other way of just of uh, reacting other than shouting. A, g- a deeper joy has been given to them that will not be su- suppressed or contained. The same word, the response of joy, is a divine evidence of Christ's character in action. But what's so overwhelmingly beautiful about Jesus is that his righteousness, which is beyond our ability to attain, his victory, which is beyond our comprehension, displays the very heart of humility. Charles Spurgeon says, There are depths in Jesus wherein Leviathan may swim, but there are also brooks in which a lamb may wade. The humility of Jesus, the humility of Jesus is the very definition. His majesty is so righteous, so victorious, and so complex that we will spend the rest of our lives and into eternity swimming in the depths of it. And at the very same time, he is the most approachable person in existence. His humility is the definition of humility itself. And he alone is able to perfectly describe his own heart. And how does he define his own heart? How does he describe himself? How does he describe the very nature of this? As we know, in all of his righteousness, in all of his victory, he describes himself as being gentle and lowly in heart. Gentleness, lowly, those are all Those are all defined in the same word, humble. Matthew 11, verse 28 and 29. Come to me, 
all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls. I have to say, I have to be honest and say that this, that verse, Matthew 11, 28 and 29, that is, I think, my favorite verse in the Bible. I've spent more time this year flipping back to that verse than any other verse. With all the weariness of this year, all of the pain, all of the sickness, all of the brokenness, I too easily forget that Jesus' heart beats with gentleness and humility. Friends, the challenge, the, the tragedy of our church, the tragedy of Christians is that we too easily forget Christ's very nature. We too easily forget that Jesus is approachable. And we often forget about the very nature of him as he describes himself. We either think that he's too high, too lofty, too unapproachable for us. We can't even go towards him. Or we think that if we meet him on his terms, that he's just, he's just like us, one or the other. But in the beginning, he is both perfectly righteous, perfectly victorious. But we must not forget that he is also approachable. He is humble. We can come to him. Meeting, meaning this, that meeting Jesus on his own terms means this, that there is literally no one that is too far gone for Jesus. Arriving in Jerusalem on a donkey is a visual representation of this fact. Yes, a donkey is both, is a royal animal fit for a king, but it is also a humble animal. It is also a humble animal brought to serve the meekest of men. Dane Orland says this, For all his resplendent glory and dazzling holiness, his supreme uniqueness and otherness, no one in human history has ever been more approachable than Jesus Christ. No prerequisites, no hoops to jump through. You don't need to unburden or collect yourself and then come to Jesus. Your very burden is what qualifies you to come. When we are lost, and when we were lost, in fickle faith and forgetfulness, Jesus came to us to say, I have come to give you rest. I have come to give you deeper joy. Approaching me is to feel a wave of righteousness through my spirit being given to you. You will experience my righteousness. You'll experience my victory. 
and you will come to me because I am a God that's come to you. Rest is found when that reality sets in. It's not a momentary rest. It is a deeper rest. A rest only found when the burden of sin is lifted from us and we can breathe a new life Jesus gives through his spirit. Righteousness, victory, humility. These are what cause deeper joy. But I want to think about a couple of ways. What are some takeaways that we can that we can take from this, from this passage on finding deeper joy in Christ. First, resolve in this season to look for evidences of grace in and around you. Resolve in this season to look for as evidences of grace in and around you, because be sure of this, God is working in and through you. Resolve in this season and in every season to be on the lookout. Be on the lookout. A few weeks ago, we were describing uh, Christians. We were saying, Christians, the church, we need to be stable. The Christian church, we are a, a stabilizing presence in society. But also, Another biblical posture for the church is to be watchful. We also must be watchful. Our deep joy in Christ comes from a watchful heart that is looking for evidences of grace. Because in that we see, we see all that God is doing. But to expect God to surprise you. Look for evidences of grace, but expect God to surprise you. Expect to shout. Expect to rejoice. Expect to exclaim very loudly in very quiet circumstances. Expect to be loud. God is in the business of surprising his people when we're on the lookout, when we are being watchful, when we are filled up being watchful, looking for what God is doing, I think that the, that the, the world around us, the city, needs to see the church being a little louder. Because when we're a little louder, that means that God's surprising us in a good way. God is surprising us. Look for evidences of grace. Expect God to surprise you. And third, fight against forgetfulness. Fight against forgetfulness. It will happen to all of us. It happens. That's why we need, we need the Holy Spirit. We need Christ. We need to be looking in the scriptures. We need to remember. We need to be reminded of this phrase, look. Your king is coming to you. B 
Because, friends, the most sinister deception of the enemy is when he convinces you that Jesus is too righteous and too lofty for you. Because that's not Jesus. Jesus is righteous. Jesus is victorious. But the majesty of Christ and his righteousness is also wrapped in his humility, is also wrapped in his approachability. He wants to hear from you. Do not forget that. Go to him. He wants to hear from you. Share your burdens with him. Commune with him. Remember that he is on that when he came into Jerusalem, he was on a donkey, a meek and mild animal. So your confidence should be in the fact that you can go to Christ, share your burdens, share your, your pain, share your sorrows, share the things that are holding you that are welling up inside you like Israel is coming and saying, will things ever be the same again? Because when you come to Jesus and ask that very question, he says, yes, and I am making all things new. Find your rest, because in rest, you will find joy. You'll find a deeper joy in my presence, in me. When we bring our burdens to Christ, we get a glimpse of the very heart that he shares for us, which is gentleness and humility. His wave of righteousness and his victory all become a reality when we get to find rest in him. The deeper joy that we celebrate during Advent is that Christ, in all of his glory, in his righteousness, in his victory, came to us. So let us go be rejoicing in Christ alone. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. We love you and we rejoice in the power and in the majesty of your name. God, would you keep us from forgetting that? Lord Jesus, will your spirit be a wave, a wave of righteousness to us that would fill us up so that we may stand in confidence in the bleakest of circumstances and be watchful and look for evidences of your grace so that the world around us will look at the church and they will see a church rejoicing. But we will see that they will see a church finding a deeper joy in you. We love you. We thank you for your son. In Christ's name. Amen.